Okay, well grab your notes, open your Bible, turn to Proverbs, and uh, we're going to start um, in this section of Proverbs. If you've uh, been here, you kind of know the drill that we're working verse by verse for the book of Proverbs. We've come to chapter 10, where the whole format of the book changes, and uh, Sh- Solomon goes into, uh, you know, sort of a... Uh, Sort of, sort of an, uh, an ADD type of uh, exposition here, where he's just jumping from topic to topic, and uh, uh, there's there's an editorial design in that, but uh, that makes studying sometimes a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, so we're going to start a, really a, a series of series in the book of Proverbs, where we look topically at various parts, various subjects that are represented here in chapters 10 through the end of the book in chapter 31. And, and uh, we're going to start because uh, chapter 10 introduces, the, introduces this topic with us uh, today with a topic of work and laziness. Work and laziness, we see that if you're in chapter 10, look at chapter 10, verse 2. This is where we left off last time. Ill-gotten gains do not profit but righteousness delivers from death. And that raises the whole topic of work and a work ethic and how we go and acquire wealth, how we pay our bills, how we save for the future, how we serve others. And in contrast to that, we see as, as uh, you know, Solomon loves contrast. If you've been reading this book and you've been paying attention, you recognize the various contrasts that Solomon employs. You know, there's a wise man and there's a foolish man. There's lady wisdom and there's Adam Folly. There, there's, there's the wife of your youth that you want to show fidelity with and, and encourage and, and become one with. And then there's the adulterous woman that you want to avoid. And there's all these different contrasts. And we see another one of those contrasts here in terms of there is a, a work ethic, there is a right way to work to the glory of God, and then there is a way to live in regard to your work that is foolish. Uh, we call that the way of the sluggard. And uh, we're going to move our way into what we're going to call a sluggard study today. And uh, we'll see that unfold for us. But um, by way of introduction, I came across this uh, little chart in uh, Larry Burkett's book, Business by the Book. And I just had to share it with you because it really is interesting. Uh, if you're like me and you're in the middle of raising children, or maybe you're thinking about your grandchildren as we were just praying for them and, and uh, wanting them to grow in Christ... You realize that the the world that our children are growing up in and the world that our grandchildren are growing up in is not the world that we grew up in. And we have, I love our church. We are a healthy church in that there are multi-generations represented in this room. And uh, it's interesting because when we think about the topic of work and a work ethic, we recognize that the world has been changing. And what, the, what it was like when you were growing up is different than when you were uh, a parent, is different uh, than it is today. Um, so look at this with me. Um, Burkett in his book, and I've just appreciated the works of uh, Larry Burkett over the years. We typically think, him, think of him as uh, you know, the area of, of personal finance. He, he was really the guy who back last century brought a biblical view of finances and and thinking about things like investing and retirement and savings and giving. He was the one that really pioneered that 
and introduced a whole generation of believers to the biblical view of those things. So we're, I know I'm indebted to his work. He's with the Lord now. His ministries continue. Um, but this was not a book I was familiar with until this last week. But, but he catalogs how the work ethic has changed from a sociological standpoint over the years. And, and I, I, I printed it and put it in your, your notes because this, this is so helpful. Now, what I want you to do as we uncover this is to, to think about wh- where, what generation do you fit in in terms of when you really learned a work ethic. So how many were here in the Puritan era? Um, where's Wes Thompson? He was here in a Puritan era, wasn't he? No. No, 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 teasing, teasing. Um, but think about this. The Puritans, and we'll talk a bit about the Puritans this morning in the, the sermon hour, because uh, the Puritans were really the first generation of Christians to be affected by the Protestant Reformation, at, at least in, in, uh, in the country of, um, of England. And um, so you think about that as, as Christians are rediscovering what the biblical gospel means, and they're coming back to the Bible. Remember, uh, as we talked about in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, Christians now have the Bible for the first time. They have a Bible in English they can read. They have translations that are, are becoming more and more available. And so they're, they're, they're really rediscovering the whole theology of the Bible. And, and as they did that, they applied the Bible to the topic of work and vocation. And what's interesting, I wish we could develop this sometime. Maybe we will uh, in the future. The Puritans saw work not not as so much a vocation, but as a calling. And some of you may know what I'm talking about. Christians of centuries ago, when they thought about their work, maybe a person was a lawyer, maybe they were a school teacher or a doctor, or, or maybe they were involved in... Um, metalworking or woodworking or you know some uh, running a store in the local town or farming or whatever it is uh, men and women in that day saw what they did in terms of their work as a calling from God there was a direct link between their faith and their work and what Burkett catalogs is how that changed, particularly in American society over the years. If we were to pull a Puritan aside in the 16th and 17th century, or the 1600s and 1700s there, and we were to say, tell me about your work ethic, they would probably say something like this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And they saw their work, whether it was something, you know, profound, or something very mundane as a calling from God. And so they did their work to the glory of God. And we know that that is the biblical view. Thinking about verses like 1 Corinthians 10.31, thinking about Colossians chapter 3, do your work heartily as for the Lord. And then some things change sociologically, and we can think, those of you that are really good at history here can think about what's going on in terms of the Enlightenment, in terms of the Industrial Revolution, in terms of some of these movements of society that actually changed the work ethic. So think about this. We come out of the 1700s into the mid-1800s, we see a shift and this is this is sort of post enlightenment affected this this represents a shift in worldview in society uh Burkett calls it the craftsman era and there's a shift now it's now god helps those who help themselves so god's still in the picture but god instead of doing work for the glory of god it's really for him now god becomes the means or the helper by which I do my work for myself. 
Okay? So there's a shift there. We move now into the eight, in the mid-1800s into the 20th century, the, this, what he calls the entrepreneur age, and now we can think about the Industrial Revolution, we can think about um, the assembly line and, and uh, what that did to uh, production, particularly on American soil, and we have this brand new worldview involving money, and it goes something like this. The pursuit of wealth provides incentives for progress. This is good old capitalism at work, right? This is all about pursuing uh, wealth because the pursuit of wealth provides motivation for working hard, for becoming uh, creative, for creating new technologies, new methodologies, new industries. And then we remember... Some of you remember this. This is, this is almost, almost completely gone today. You remember when the companies took care of people? You remember that? I remember my grandfather retired from Beckman Instruments. Uh, he worked for many years as a field service engineer, 40 some odd years, and uh, he worked on medical centrifuges, you know, right? Real interesting little things, and he would go all over the place uh, servicing these, fixing them, replacing them. And I, I remember when he retired, it was a big deal. You know, th- there was a pension, there there was a big celebration, there was a plaque, there was, I think they even had this like company-wide party for him, and, and it's a big deal. And and what's that? A gold watch. A gold watch, yeah, probably so. And, um, and, and nowadays, when, when people retire from... 30 years, 40 years, even more of, you know, the company might yawn. And that's about the end of it, right? I mean, talk to me. Is that, is that how it goes today? And so th- there was this era, that, and some would call it the real golden era of, of the corporation between mid-1900s and really uh, Burkett marks it as 1980 being the, really the end of this time. Loyalty to the company is the source of security. So you were loyal to your company, you put your time in, right? And they took care of you. When you were, when you were ready to retire, they took care of you. And, and that whole thought of a, of a pension, a, a retirement that you could actually uh, continue to live on was your, really, your, your uh, benefit for all those years of being faithful to the company. All that changed is around 1980 with the dawn of something called postmodernism. And uh, we, we can track this, again, another time sociologically, but it's really interesting. And we see this today, don't we? Where it ceases to be about the glory of God, it ceases to be primarily about uh, the pursuit of wealth or loyalty to a company, now work slides into this era where it's all about me. It's an era of self-fulfillment. How will my work make me happy? And when, if we were to poll young people today, and we were to say, what do you want to do with, their, with your life? Now, a lot of them are not thinking about what they even want to do with their life, right? Because they're too busy playing video games and hanging out with their friends. But that's, that's another, don't, don't get me off on that. But um, how, you know, what do you want to do with your life? And, and they would probably respond by thinking about what would make me the most happy, right? We're not talking about, you know, doing something you're good at or something you enjoy. I mean, that, that's a good part of it. But they primarily would think about their future in terms of personal satisfaction, personal happiness. And then uh, we get into what Burkett just calls complete egocentricism. Whatever works for me is the best work ethic. Only legitimate boundaries are self-imposed. Isn't that true? You know, it's not the company that's now saying you will wear this, you will dress like this, 
you will work on this project, these will be the rules, these will be the guidelines. But now companies have had to back off almost completely because the standard is so, is so low. The bar is so low now that to just get somebody to show up on the day that they were supposed to work is some big feat of, of massive employing success. And that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because some of you that are grandparents are looking at your grandchildren going, what is wrong with you? And some of that may be personal, but but a lot of it is sociological. A lot of it is what is expected today, what companies do today. The, The cultural worldview in terms of the work ethic today is very different than when you got your first job. You know, I can hear I can hear Dr. Martin talking about working at the the hot dog uh, plant. You remember that the packing plant that he oh he loves to tell that story. T- talk to Dr. Martin sometime about his first job and and uh, that's right. What's that? Fifty cents a day. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. So all that to say, uh, like marriage, like parenting, like um, other realms of society, the longer. History moves forward, the more society is departing from the biblical worldview. And that means the work that the church and particularly families are called to do is harder and even more important. You know, back in the 30s, back in the 40s, the 1930s and 1940s, you didn't have to define marriage. Good night, you didn't have to define gender for people. You didn't have to explain a biblical worldview and work ethic because it was part of the society. And now it's like there's this massive gap between what is culturally acceptable and what the Bible teaches. And what that means is, you know, we've got to have our A game every day as families and as a church when we think about things like marriage and gender. Um, but today we want to think particularly about how this affects work. And if you're a young person, if you're a teenager, man, uh, th- this is going to be very, very challenging for you. But, but I, want, I want this to be encouraging because don't take this, what Solomon is going to say, as a rebuke so much as it is an extension of what it means to walk with God. You, we're going to go over what the Bible says about work and laziness. And if you're the average teenager, you're going to go, Wow. Really? But here's what I want you to see for the young people in the room. This whole book is about what it means to walk with God, about to live in the fear of the Lord. And what that means is you have to turn your ears off and shut your eyes to what you see amongst your peers, on social media, in entertainment, on your college campus, on your football field. Whatever realm that you hang out with your friends, you've got to close your ears and shut your eyes because if you take instruction from that realm of life, you will be a sluggard. You will be a Christian who does not honor God in the area of work and vocation. It'll just happen. I guarantee you, it'll just happen. And here's another reason you will definitely be a sluggard. Because sluggardliness resonates with your and my natural fallenness. It's easy to be a sluggard. Just do what you feel like doing. And if you don't feel like it, don't do it. It's easy. It's hard to be a man or woman who walks with God and lives and works for the glory of God and is responsible 
in that and takes their work seriously. Not because their boss is making them do it, not because the company is making them do it, not because the company is even going to take care of them. You know, the company, by the time you guys get to the end of your career, you know, I, I, I shrink to think what that will be like, you know. They'll probably want to take money back from you at that point, right, rather than, you know, have money for you. And it will take, it will take a radical work of God's grace in your heart to work for the glory of God in those days. Okay, this is about you learning to walk with God, to live in the fear of the Lord in the area of vocation. Okay, so with that in mind, let's do a sluggard study. All right, sluggard study. On your notes there, grab your notes. First of all, what is laziness? Let's just define this here uh, so we have a solid foundation upon which to build. What is laziness? Here's my definition. According to Proverbs, laziness is misusing the time, gifts, skills, resources, and responsibilities that God has given me as a stewardship for his purposes. That's laziness. Laziness is misusing the time, gifts, skills, resources, and responsibilities that God has given me as a stewardship for his purposes. Notice notice how there's a theocentric part of this definition, meaning God is in the middle of how Proverbs defines laziness for us. This is not just, you know, if, you, if you're not responsible, you're not going to gain wealth. If you're not responsible, you're not going to move up in your company. If you're not responsible, you're going to get stuck, you know, working a, a minimum wage job the rest of your life. That, that, that's, not, that's not the biblical appeal. The biblical appeal is you shouldn't be a sluggard. You should seek to be a person of responsibility and, and integrity and industry in your work because your life is about the glory of God. Now, young people, think about this. You've been given gifts. You've been given resources. You've been given responsibilities. You've been given talents. You've been given opportunities. You've been given skills. And where do those things come from? Where do they come from? Okay, Mrs. Slaughter knows where they come from. Does anybody else know where they come from? Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? Thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad you know that. I'm glad you're with me here. Okay? And, and, and you know, this works for old people too. We think about the gifts and skills God has given us. Some of you are in retirement. Some of you are in the middle of your career. Some of you are thinking about retirement soon. Some of you are just starting. Wherever you're at, we think of all these things that God has given us. And he's not given us those things so that we can just do whatever we want to do. He's given us those those skills, those gifts, those resources, those opportunities so that we can honor God in our work in a way that draws attention to the gospel and displays what I'm going to call Christian excellence in what we do. I mean, what, you know how hard it is, you know, to, to get people to think about the gospel? I mean, they're thinking about their entertainment, they're thinking about their family, you know, how are we going to draw attention to the gospel? Here's a radical idea. Set the bar of your work ethic here and wait for people to ask what's wrong with you. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? You don't have to do that. You can get away with this. You're going to get paid the same amount of money with this than here. Why do you do that? Because I'm not working for him. I'm working for the Lord. 
What a great gospel opportunity that is. We, we need to be creative today, right? Looking for gospel opportunities. And I would suggest that pursuing Christian excellence in our work is a great evangelistic opportunity. Okay, so with that in mind, let's talk about the sluggard. First of all, the sluggard does not begin when he should. Look, at, Flip over to Proverbs chapter 6. We're just going to uh, work our way through um, several different Proverbs here. So you can follow along. Uh, I put some of the verses are up on the PowerPoint. Some of them you'll have to look up. Uh, the slugger does not begin when he should. You know, it all starts at the beginning, right? A very good place to start. Proverbs chapter 6, look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. You know, a, a, a sluggardly way begins simply with the habit of not beginning when you should. Uh, it's, it's learning, if it's time to work, I work. If it's time to play, I play, right? But it's this idea that if I have a responsibility, it starts with getting up and getting engaged in my day. It, it start, you know, If it's time to do homework, it means it's time to do homework. It's not time uh, to go play with my friends. It's not time to get out my iPad. It's not time to look out the window. It's time to engage in the work. So we learn that the way of the sluggard starts with right out of the gate. He stumbles at, at the start line, doesn't he? Because he doesn't get up. He doesn't engage in his work. He needs to get started. And so when we think about uh, young people, when we think about growing and developing a biblical worldview, it starts with learning the self-control and discipline to begin your work when you ought to begin and not to put it off, not to keep putting it off until you feel like doing it. Because the reality is if you wait to do the right thing until you feel like doing it, you may never feel like doing it. And, you know, if I can just say this as a footnote here, um, the real issue behind the lazy work ethic that we see in the generation today is really misunderstanding the role of feelings in a person's life. Okay, so here's how this goes. Um, the Bible teaches that what motivates the Christian is the glory of God. That, that, that is the motivational fuel of the Christian life. I think about how would this honor God? How would God be honored by me saying this or not saying this? How, how would God be honored in me doing this or not doing this? You know, I, 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 everything in life gets motivated through this one question. What will glorify God? And what the Bible says is, when that is my motivation, and I pursue a life of pleasing God, of doing what is right, and engaging in loving God and loving neighbor, in all these different realms of life, the Bible says, I will feel good because I know I'm glorifying God and I'm loving my neighbor. Okay? So feelings, good feelings, are the result of me doing the right thing for the glory of God. Well, what's happened in today's culture? That has completely been reversed. The, the caboose of feelings has become the engine on the tracks now. And people today live, their main motivation becomes this. Do I feel like doing this right now? And how they happen to feel in the moment has now become the motivation 
or they use that as the motivation. So if I feel like doing my homework, I will. And if I don't feel like doing my homework, I'll go to do something else till either my mom gets on me or till I have to do it or, you know, some other horrible external motivation. But do you see that? It's because feeling, this is the point, feelings have taken a role that God has never designed them to play. Your feelings were never designed by God to be the main motivation in your life. It's the glory of God that is the main motivation in life. And when you make, this is what's interesting, when you make the glory of God your main motivation, that affects your wants, it affects your feelings, it affects your desires. We're not thinking about Christian stoicism here where, you know, in my heart, I hate everything I'm doing, but I'm, I'm doing it because I know God's honored in it. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about doing things for the glory of God and that changes your affections. It changes on the inside so that you want to do these things. But there are plenty of times when you, your, your initial feeling about it is not to do the right thing. Have you noticed this? Oh, old people talk to me. Is this, is this how it works? That's how it works, doesn't it? And so, young people, this, if, if we could say something from the text that might help you, and that is this, don't let your feelings be the motivation. Fight the tendency to live your life, to get used to life, to, to developing the habit of living by how you feel. And exchange that for the only motivation that matters, and that is to do things for the glory of God and for His honor. Okay? So right out of the gate, the, the, the sluggard stumbles at the starting block here. Because he does not begin when he should. He needs to get started. Number two. Number two. He also stumbles at the finish line, doesn't he? He doesn't finish what he starts. And this is really actually kind of entertaining. Uh, Turn with me to chapter 12, verse 27. Chapter 12, verse 27. Now, some of these, I'm going to make you think on this, okay? And I know it's been a long week. Um, Listen to Proverbs 12, verse 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey. Now, Now, stop right there. Why not? Right? He goes out and he, he, he goes hunting and he brings back some delicious animal. Why doesn't he roast his prey? Why not? It's too much trouble. He never gets around to it. Right? He doesn't finish what he starts. He's going out, hey honey, gonna go get a, uh, some venison for us today, right? And he, and he finds that, uh, that buck that he's been looking for all season. And he shoots it. And he gets it, uh, cleaned. But he never roasts it. He doesn't finish what he starts. Because he's too lazy. Look at chapter 19, verse 24. The sluggard, this is the one on your notes there, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. Now, you're supposed to laugh when you read that. Now, you may not be into the sort of Hebrew poetic humor, but you're actually supposed to laugh when you read that. It's actually quite funny. The picture is, here's the sluggard, and he's at the table. And there's his meal in front of him. And he sticks his spoon in the dinner... But he's so lazy, he forgets to bring it up to his mouth. 
And we say, ha, 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 I get it now, okay? It, it, it's, it's total hyperbolic language. It's, it's exaggerating to make the point. And you go, who on earth would do that? You didn't do that with your cereal this morning, I don't think. Did you? But what's the point? The point is he gets lost, and so he never completes the task. He never finishes the work. Chapter 26, verse 15 says this. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. Why? Because he's weary of bringing it to his mouth. And you, again, this is where you, you must laugh on cue here. Okay, so here's the sluggard. He's sitting at the table, takes the spoon. He puts it in there, and he gets, he gets a whole bunch of food on the spoon, and he goes, man... It's going to be a lot of work to bring that back to my mouth. You know, I'm not sure I want to do that. You know, maybe I'll wait till tomorrow, right? I'll put it off till tomorrow. So he needs to persevere. He needs to finish what he starts. Number three, the sluggard does not prosper. The sluggard does not prosper. Look at chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Now this is interesting. The sluggard has no trouble telling you what he wants to do, what he'd like his life to be like. He craves, he wants, he desires. He can tell you all the things that he wants to do, but he gets nothing. So why does he get nothing? Well, the, the contrast... Now, remember, the way Proverbs works is it uses something called um, contrastive parallelism. Okay? Contrastive parallelism. What does that mean? It means Solomon is going to say two things back-to-back that are opposites. So the soul of the sluggard craves but gets nothing. Here's the contrast. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. And you're saying, ah, fat, that's bad. Well, in that culture, fat was actually good. Okay, so what he's saying is the opposite of the sluggard is the diligent person, the one who perseveres. And so we see the the sluggard doesn't prosper. Why? Because he's always wanting and never doing. He's always thinking about what he's going to do. He's always lusting after what he's going to do, but he never actually does anything. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. He needs to be diligent in his work. That's the fix. The the fix is, okay, stop thinking about it and go take a step in implementation. Go, Go do it. Put it together. But you know what? The sluggard is not just one who hurts himself. The sluggard hurts others by his laziness. Now, Now, we talked about already the two great commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we can, we can summarize the essence of Christianity, the will of God for my life, in those two commands, right? Loving God and loving neighbor. Now, what does that mean in terms of laziness and diligence? It means that your laziness does not just affect you. It inhibits your ability to be obedient to the second commandment. If you have an opportunity uh, to serve your neighbor, to help somebody... And you think, well, but that's really going to ruin my plans for the day, right? That's, that's going to inconvenience me. That's going to require some work and some forethought and, and some sacrifice. Well, that's what it means to be a person who walks with God. The sluggard hurts others by his laziness, 1026. Like vinegar to the teeth. I want you to try this when you go home, okay? Take a cup of vinegar and pour it in your mouth, swish it around like mouthwash, you know, let it get into your teeth, 
and then text me this afternoon and tell me how it feels. Or try this. When you're over the grill, here's the grill, right? Here's the smoke. Just just do this. Uh, open your eyes and just tell me how that feels. Like vinegar to teeth and like smoke to the eyes. So that would be, let's see, painful, burning, unpleasant, um, bitter, right? Just think of all the, the words that come to mind as you picture doing those two horrible things. That's what it's like if you send a lazy person to go do a task on your behalf. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hurtful. You're going to feel bitter about it. Why? Because the lazy person is not what? He's not reliable. So, so young people, you think about this. Um, it's not hard to move up in vocation today. Just be reliable. If you are reliable, you are in the top 10% of your age group. Is that true? Talk, talk to me here. Is that true? It's true. This is, this is not hard. Be reliable. Do what you say you're going to do. Be responsible. Um, on your notes there, he needs to be reliable and dependable in his work. And, and again, I, we, we need to see this not as just saying, well, if I'm reliable and dependable, I'm going to ascend the corporate ladder. I mean, that, that may be true, but why is being reliable and dependable really important according to this verse? Because others are depending on you. It's a way of loving your neighbor. And you may not think about this, but when you are not reliable and dependable, when you say you're going to do something or when an employer asks you to do something, or, you know, this works for mom and dad too, when mom and dad ask you to do something, you are breaking the second great commandment. Because you're not loving your neighbor. You're, you're not considering others as more important than yourself. Um, so, so, so think of this as an opportunity, not just to love God, but also to love your neighbor also. Now here's another one. The sluggard pridefully makes excuses for himself. I, I love that. This is really, this is another one where you need to laugh on cue, okay? So get ready. I warned you. Chapter 26, verse 13. Chapter 26, verse 13. Look at this. Um, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There's a lion in the open square. Um, we need to like pull the car over and talk about that for a minute. What does that mean? Interpret that for me. You, you gotta, you gotta think, and you gotta think. It, it, actually, the context here doesn't totally make the meaning obvious. So, um, but, but think about what we know about sluggards so far. What, what is, what is he doing there? Okay, he's making excuses, he sees danger, it's a large challenge. Yes, okay, you're, you're getting at it, okay? Okay, because there's a lion in the road, he's going to expect somebody else to do it, that's right. Okay, so here's the thing. He's exaggerating about the hardship and turns that into an excuse to not do the work so somebody else will do it. Okay? He exaggerates the challenge. He exaggerates the hardship. There's a lion in the road! I mean, probably not. Probably not. Although I was talking to my mom. My mom 
every now and then I'm on the phone with my mom and I, I remind her through things of, you know, I live in a town of like 700 people and she's in LA and I'm driving down the road. I'm talking to her. Like, Hang on, mom. I put the phone down. What's, what's going on? I about hit a deer going home 377 last week, you know, like these cars are swerving and you know, there's Bambi going across the road and, you know, not in LA anymore. Um, okay, so there may be lions in the road, but, but Solomon here is exaggerating, okay? There's this great challenge. There's this great hardship due to my work. I can't possibly do it. And we know that that's the interpretation because of the rest of the verse. Look at it. Look at what it says. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. He buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. And this puts the finger on the real heart issue amongst the sluggardly. What is that? What's the heart issue? This is the part where you talk. It is laziness, but what's even deeper than the la- What drives and fuels the laziness? Pride. You see that? The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. That's why he doesn't change. Now, this is important. That's why he doesn't change. Because he may be getting all sorts of advice from his parents, from his church, from his employer, from his teachers at school, from his coach, and the sluggard doesn't change but he's, because he says this, they're all wrong. I'm actually a very diligent person. And it's the heart of pride that keeps the sluggard from changing. And that's the real issue. And that's why, as we've unfolded this book, Solomon says the heart of the man who fears the Lord is first humble. In fact, that's what the fear, that the first thing the fear of the Lord does is it humbles the fire out of you. I mean, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God says to Job, right? Where were you? And we think about who God is and what He does and, and, and His power and His wisdom and His, His might, His skill, the, the way He runs uh, the universe, the way He redeems bad things so that they bring good things in the lives of His people. When we think about His mercy and His grace, Pastor Terry talked about this last Sunday, what it means that God is gracious and merciful to us. And, and the, the, the single response of the person who's even half paying attention to that is to be broken and humble. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me. He's not just humbled, he's like a dead man. And that's what we see men and women in Scripture when they encounter the living God. It breaks them, it humbles them, it lowers them. And that's the problem with the sluggard is he thinks way more highly of himself than he ought to think. And that's why we we talked about... um, the, the man, the, 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 the fool that doesn't accept correction. We saw that too. It's the heart of pride, isn't it? Pride is what keeps that from happening. So the sluggard pridefully makes excuses for himself. And what the reality is, he needs to be honest about himself. He needs to think about himself with a right judgment, Paul would say. To think as he ought to think. Willing to admit his mistakes. You say, okay, I, I admit this. I, I can be stubborn sometimes and I don't always admit. I, I, I don't always change when I get correction. I kind of push back. Here, here's a great way to start that. Start being honest with yourself about your mistakes. 
That's a great way to start. And when other people try to talk to you about your mistakes, listen to them. Don't get angry at them. Listen. And then humbly pursue change. Next one. The sluggard does not plan for the future. Chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. The sluggards live in the moment. They, they, think, they think this far. What's for lunch today? They think, what do I need to do right now? They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're not thinking about the next week. They're not thinking about the next several months. They're not thinking, you know, and you, you know where, the, where this kills young people is in the area of finances. Because I guarantee you that that freshman year of college, they're going to show up on campus. And they got all the student clubs right there. You know who always have booths set up? Credit card companies. Do you know why they do that? Because they know this person is 18, they can get a credit card, but they have no established credit yet, so mom and dad are going to have to co-sign. And it's this generation, they lack self-control, which means they're going to spend money they don't have, and the credit card companies are going to get rich off of these freshman students. Now talk to me, parents, is that how it works? That's how it works. So they don't think about the future. They don't think if I spend this now, the bill's going to come in 30 days, and then what do I do? The slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest. Of course, in this time, they didn't have credit cards, but they're thinking about, let's see, if I don't, if I don't plow now and put that away in storehouses, then when winter comes, I don't eat. Which means I die. So the slugger needs to wisely plan ahead. Notice this. The slugger does not maintain what he owns. Chapter 24, verse 30. I passed by the field of the sluggard. How do you know a sluggard, uh, residence? Well, you look at the yard, right? And by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with with nettles. Its stone was broken down. And when I saw it, I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. The slugger does not maintain what he owns. Interesting, Larry Burkett actually develops this in his books on finances. And, And this is... This is really actually convicting. One of the things you're supposed to think about before you purchase something is, can I maintain this? Right? And um, he needs to care for that which he has been entrusted. There's a stewardship there because those are God's things that he's stewarding. Last, the sluggard despises doing work. He despises, and this is a difference. In the Puritan day, and I'm not saying everybody was like this, but this was the worldview. Work was a blessing. Work was a good thing. Vocation was wonderful because it was a way to glorify God with the gifts and resources that he'd given you. Work is a good thing. And and you say, well, that's just the Puritans. They got that wrong. Actually, we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Adam is in a perfect society. He's in a perfect place. There's no sin in the world. There's no wickedness. He and and Eve are enjoying a perfect marriage. And God tells Adam, there's the couch, there's ESPN on the big screen TV, right? Golf course out back. Everything's great, right? No, he says, actually, there's some things I want you to do. Okay, there's this garden. Tend it. There's this creation. Rule over it. Steward over it. Cultivate it. Keep it. Be the steward over creation. 
And that's what we call the cultural mandate in theology, and it is the basis for why we build things, design things, make things, grow things, um, make clothes, cars, airplanes, develop medicines. You know, it's the whole basis for society. And all that was given before the fall, which means... Now, young people, this is going to shock you. You might want to write this down. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not because we live in a sin-cursed, evil world and, and someday in heaven we're not going to work anymore. There's a thought. Retired folks, you think heaven is going to be like retirement? I don't have any responsibilities? <laughs> oh, you need to fix your eschatology. No, it's that we will do work we enjoy for the glory of God forever and it will be enjoyable, it will be wonderful. The things that you love to do, the things that I love to do. But unhindered by sin, and things that are a result of the fall, like taxes and... No, no I'm just I'm sorry. Um, okay. 21.25, the desire the sluggard puts into death for his hands refuse to work. Why? Because he despises the work. He thinks work is a bad thing when God designed work as a good thing. What it means to walk with God is not trying to do the minimal amount of work and resting and playing and entertaining yourself the rest of the time. Sure, there's a place for rest. Sure, there's a place for play and entertainment. Those are good gifts from God. But work is not a bad thing. In in fact, work is one of the main ways... Think about this. Work is one of the main ways we glorify God with most of the hours of our day. Which means, if you're not working... And I don't mean this as like anti-retirement. Don't, don't hear me saying that. But for those of us in that season of life, working is one of the main ways we glorify God in the hours of the day. So what's the solution? There's only, there's only one solution to despising work, and, and that is coming back to what God says in His Word. And we think about what Colossians says. Do your work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. That's the antidote. The antidote is, I am working for Jesus, not ultimately my employer, myself, my family. I'm doing it for Him. And and you know this. If, um, let's talk talk to the, uh, uh, the Williams boys here for a minute. So, so if, if Jesus walked in the back door and He came up here, I I won't pick on the, everybody here, okay? Jesus comes in here and He says, okay. Uh, Mrs. Slaughter, I've got something for you to do. Would you pay attention? Miss Bixby, I have something for you to do. Would you pay attention? And he goes around the room. He's got, if Jesus walked in here and said, this is what I want you to do, no Christian in their right mind would say, oh, I've got a golf game at 2 o'clock today, tea time. No one would say that. They would say, of course, it would be my honor to serve you in this way. And yet we don't, we don't look at going to our 9 to 5 job as a personal assignment from Jesus. But it is. It is. So we, we, we need to bring our vocation, our work back under the Lordship of Christ to do our work heartily as for the Lord, whether we eat or drink or work fast food, right? We do it all to the glory of God. And that begins the course of setting a foundation for a biblical worldview. Okay, put, your, put a comment in your notes. We'll come back next time. We'll talk about part two. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful uh, for how your word rearranges and reorients how we think 
even about everyday things like work and vocation. Lord, I pray, especially for our young people, that as they grow in love for Christ and trust in him, that they would let their faith inform and shape and motivate how they do their work, knowing that they will be weird amongst their peers. Uh, and yet that weirdness, that, that excellence that they pursue, the attitude with which they pursue it, will bring glory to you and hopefully will draw many of their friends to the gospel. Lord, we pray, would you do a work in today's generation that desperately needs to reorient and reframe and really reinvent the biblical, uh, the, the, the commonplace understanding of work so that it aligns with the biblical view? And would you bring grace and wisdom? Will you give help to these young people that have a huge task ahead of them? Uh, give them grace as they pursue that, and help the rest of us that are working. Uh, Many of us are retired already. Help us, even in our responsibilities, whatever they might be today, to model and, and be a good example of this work ethic, that your name will be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.